This evening, I'd <clears throat> like to build on as much as I kind of what Michael said last evening, the importance of attitude. And what, uh, we've, what's been emphasized since the beginning has been <coughs> the urgency of self-discovery. It's a journey into ourselves, whether you're working with a vacuum cleaner cleaning toilets, uh, potentially it can teach you about yourself, but you have to enroll in the course. The curriculum's all set. Life is constantly teaching. Lessons are all over the place. But uh, we, have to be, we have to not only show up, but be available to learn it. Now, when we come to a retreat center, we have the official places where the important learning goes on, mainly the hall and walking. And we all uh, encourage people to be mindful throughout the day and also when you go home. What I'd like to do is take that theme and suggest a way in which uh, it's very important for us to modify it, in fact, to change it uh, radically so that um, we make at least a small contribution to developing a, a practice for lay people that is robust and enables us to thrive rather than to compare ourselves constantly to a monastic tradition which has its own vitality and its own beauty uh, but very different situation than our own. Um, <clears throat> like to uh, one uh, teacher I learned a lot from her name is Ayama Roshi. Uh, she uh, is a Japanese uh, Zen master, and I've been reading her t teachings for years and felt it was a very beautiful teaching, very inspiring. And she came to the Boston area for a few days, so I spent some time with her, not nearly enough. But um, one thing that she said, she's, uh, uh, I'll quote to you. In her tradition, Soto Zen, they talk a lot about joyful mind. You'll see what, uh, in a moment what that means. So this is a story from Ayama Roshi. A company president once told me the following story. We were having a problem with graffiti in one of our company washrooms. Someone was scribbling repeatedly in the toilet stalls. This is, in, this is in Japan. Spotless, hygienically impeccable Japan. Okay. No matter how many times we put up warning signs and painted over the scribbling, the graffiti would appear again. One day, a different message was posted. A signboard on which was written, quote, Please don't make this toilet dirty with scribbling. This is my precious place of work. It was written by an old cleaning woman in a faltering handwriting. Everyone was deeply moved by the notice, and from that day on, the scribbling ceased completely. This is now Ayomaroshi speaking. The repeated warnings failed to stop the graffiti, but it was completely halted by one sign in a shaky handwriting. Cleaning a toilet is usually looked down on 
and even the janitor often feels that it is a humiliating job. And yet this old woman declared with conviction that the toilets were her precious place of work and that her work was a valuable job. Everyone at the company admired the old woman's attitude, even the habitual offender doing the scribbling who must have felt ashamed. She put her entire life energy into her job, working with nobility. Her attitude is nothing other than joyful mind. All work without exception is wonderful work, depending upon one's attitude. It becomes irreplaceable, wonderful work or meaningless work. When we can face any and all work with the attitude of that janitor, the encounter with work becomes complete and our lives become joyful and worth living. I once toured an electronics factory after giving a lecture there. I was astonished to see how the workers used microscopes to assemble the extremely tiny parts. If one of those minuscule parts is assembled inaccurately, the entire mechanism fails. I saw how each and every tiny part works in the world, shouldering the work of the entire watch. I thought that there is nothing so small that it is worthless or meaningless. What is this obsession I have with toilets? <laughs> I may have other obsessions, but I, I don't have one with toilets. I've done plenty of it in the army, Zen monasteries, home. It's not that big a deal. Um, but what What's important is we're trying to convey an attitude. We're trying to develop an attitude uh, here, while we're here, in a contemplative retreat um, that uh, will make the transition from here to what we call there, meaning whatever is next for you on Wednesday, uh, one that flows smoothly. Um, and I'm going to try to put that together, a little piece here and a little piece there. Um, now, what's, what is the limitation of uh, this uh, beautiful anecdote? Perhaps you think it's a little romanticized, the nobility of cleaning a toilet and so forth. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know the, the cleaning woman. And, uh, but Ayama Roshi does not see, seem like someone who romanticized anything. She was very, very clear-minded and a very, very wonderful teacher. In person, she was even better than her books. Um, but there was, I don't know, it may have changed in Japan, but that was a cultural value. I don't know if any of you have seen the film The, the Bridge Over River Kwai with Alec Guinness, where these British prisoners who are all suffering from malnutrition, their uniforms are torn to shreds, they're sick, and the Japanese commander gets Alec Guinness, who's a British army officer with a swagger stick, you know, kind of a caricature of a certain kind of British officer. The, the bombs could be going off, people dying, but their trousers are well creased and posture is erect and everything. Is just like they're in some uh, estate, the dining room in some estate. Uh, and Alec Guinness, who takes great pride, is getting these workers to try and build this bridge. And the Japanese commander is constantly telling them, he, and they're listening to him, you see them, they are barely human. He's saying, be happy in your work. Uh, well, it's a little obs obscene and a little ridiculous. 
but that was a cultural value. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is that that's an ideal. Now, in some cultures, it may be so much of an ideal that many people actually are doing that. We have ideals in our culture that have been transmitted generation after generation so that people actually do it, and there's nothing to it. And then when we have to learn new things, it's hard because it's alien to us. It's foreign to us. Um, probably we don't have that attitude towards cleaning the toilet or other so-called menial jobs. In fact, there's probably, probably, there's definitely, there's the function of work, which has no status at all. It's just what gets done. And then we tend to build status out of everything. And it's not just work, it's any activity. If you feel uh, flossing is something, you've done it for about 200,000 times. Uh, so you know, it gets done, your teeth are clean, but you were, you were barely there to do it. It's all on automatic pilot, mechanical, habitual. We don't, we're, what we're not valuing, it's not that we don't value the flossing, it probably would improve if we were more awake, is that we don't value the quality of our life in that moment. Because those moments are real moments in our life. It's about us, it's not about flossing in a sense. Or about cleaning a toilet. In this sense, the attitude is one of formlessness. That is the, the possibility of being aware and present to everything that happens in our day, the most ordinary, uh, seemingly uh, unimportant events, uh, that, that awareness is formless. Now, we create forms like the one here, and there are endless forms, that, and they're useful. This is a very brilliant, wonderful form. It's an ancient form. We've adapted it. Um, but it's an, uh, it, it, it's an ideal in the following sense. Self-discovery is when you come in, for example, that woman, the cleaning woman, probably didn't need to discover anything about herself regarding that because it was, it was her. But we're different. So that what I'm suggesting is all the ordinary activities that make up our day here, uh, you, you name it, tying your shoelaces, putting on boots, taking them off, uh, washing your dish as you deposit it uh, in the, near the dishwashing machine, uh, anything you want to name, your yogi job. The reason we're emphasizing it is that um, what I'm trying to suggest is that we need a new attitude. And uh, it's not an easy one. And the new attitude is uh, to have respect for everything we do. Now, uh, everyone says, have you been, is, those of you who've been on retreats, don't we all say at the end of a retreat, bring mindfulness back to your daily life and include in this, that, and the other? Of course. Everyone says that. And the Buddha says, be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, lying down. So the seeds are all in the original teachings. But uh, let me give you um, a little bit of Buddhist history, not to be pedantic, but to show you uh, that the teachings are alive and need to be changed, need to, be, to, to stay alive uh, as it moves from one culture to another. And now it's in our culture. When uh, the Buddha's teaching arrived in China, uh, the monastic tradition uh, actually is more than monastic. If you were a seeker in ancient India, you didn't have to live in a monastery. The culture was such that if you were identified as a seeker, people would, you would get fed and cared for because people, that was part of the culture. 
if you were, let's say, a yogi, identified as a yogi, uh, you could count on food. You could count on help. Because that was in that culture, that's what was valued. So you had people who did, were in monasteries. You had people who were living in caves, wandering yogis, ascetics, and so forth. And in that culture, that was legitimate. And it was, to some degree, very otherworldly and appreciated and respected. And a lot of good came out of it. A lot of what we're learning here, we owe it to them. Believe it or not, we do. Okay. So now these teachings get transported to China. And the Chinese take a look at it. They take a look at these grown, able-bodied men, monks, and they find it abhorrent walking around with bowls. They, found, they considered them beggars. It wasn't, it wasn't something, they didn't value it. And they were much more, it was more of an earthy culture. It was not so otherworldly. And so, um, the, to make a long story short, there were, uh, in Zen is where it really changed by a, a man named Bei Chang, a Chinese master. And he said, a day of no work is a day of no eating. And he put the monks to work. Uh, so that's a radical change. They didn't do that in India. And there's a, a very large literature that some of you may have read, poetry and all kinds of stuff, on uh, what is the essence of, of enlightenment or Zen. It's eating rice and drinking tea. It's uh, drawing water and chopping wood. In other words, they, they uh, elevated ordinary activities, mainly physical. They gave it a higher rank. They considered it more, more valuable than it had been in India because it didn't exist in India. It was a different culture. And the Zen tradition flourished. In fact, a lot of the monasteries were, were um, eliminated by one emperor, but not the Zen monasteries, especially the ones because the Chinese people appreciated the fact that they farmed, they took care of themselves, they grew, the, grew their own food, and they were um, more Chinese. Okay, now uh, in Japan, uh, there's a famous teaching by uh, Dogen. Uh, this, in other words, this is the next step. Dogen was a Japanese uh, Buddhist monk. And he didn't like the way things were going in Japanese Buddhism. He felt things were sloppy and people weren't really uh, practicing. He didn't see any real dharma going on. So he went to China, he finally, and in a famous exchange, uh, and the, the boat pulls in from Japan to its docks uh, in China, and an old Chinese monk comes aboard and wants to buy mushrooms from some of the Japanese passengers who had them, uh, and he turns out to be the cook, head cook at a monastery. And um, Dogen sees, gets a sense that this, this man is an experienced practitioner, really is, uh, has something to teach, and he approaches him, and they start to talk. And uh, Dogen invites him to stay and have tea because he wants to have a, a rich Dharma exchange with him. He says, no, I can't. There's a, a very important uh, event coming up, and I want to make a special meal for the monks. And I don't have too much, but if I can get some mushrooms, dried mushrooms from Japan. I can use that to enhance the sauce, and uh, it'll be a nice way of helping the monks to celebrate this some event. And Dogen, is, uh, he doesn't get it. He's kind of uh, perplexed. He says, why don't you stay? You know, what's, what, I'm going to 
paraphrase. <laughs> I mean, if Dogen stopped off in Brooklyn first before he went to <laughs> says, what's, what's the big deal, you know, about mushroom shmushrooms, you know. Uh, stay over, let's talk, someone else can do it. And in effect, what the monk says, young man, you've got a lot to learn about the, what real Dharma is. Now, eventually what happens is, of course, Dogen comes off the ship and uh, starts practicing it at a monastery. And he sees how the monasteries are run, where administrative work, every aspect of the monastery is really attended to. Uh, and what they're encouraged to do, the seed is in the original teachings of the Buddha, is to be mindful, is to, just as this uh, old woman was cleaning the toilet, no job was trivial. Whatever job you have was contributing to the overall benefit of the monastery. And the better monasteries, of course, the better run they were, but it isn't just efficiency. It's not that sort of like industrial efficiency and that maybe we should... Uh, uh, take Pei Chang's teachings to some of these corporations because then they'll get more work out of their workers. Uh, it was e efficient, but it was a path. In other words, when you're totally attentive to something, uh, in a certain sense, I, one of uh, the Korean Zen master that I worked with very intensively for about five years, sometimes he would ask me, at the time I was, uh, I had, anyway, it's not important. He would, he would ask me, what is your true job? And I told him, you know, at the time I had been a professor, and I told him, social psychologist. And he said, no, 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 what is your true job? And I would just scratch my head and walk out. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I thought I answered it perfectly correctly. I, you know, I was a carpenter. I was whatever it is. What he was getting at is that any of these forms, any of these, anything you do, at the same time that it's in quotes mundane, I say that in quotes, because with the perspective that we're trying to present, mundane and sacred are really, the, they become the same thing. It isn't, uh, it, in other words, that's a convention to designate certain activities. Let's say if you wear certain robes and shave your head, that's the holy life. But if you have a three-piece suit or you wear high heels and put on mascara, that's mundane. Who said? Well, someone said it because that's how the language goes. But to me, uh, the holy life, life is holy, unless you don't experience it that way, uh, doesn't have to do with what costume you're wearing or your sartorial style. It has to do with how you're relating to life, which of course includes everything. Objects, people, animals, plants, especially. And of course, people, which is the hardest one for us. And so simultaneously, as you're carrying out ordinary human activities, at the same time, you're deepening consciousness. In other words, the present moment is a phrase that uh, has immense significance. But what is the present moment? It, it is inexhaustible. Because by being with the, that's all we have, and as you present moment, present moment, and as we move from here now to here now to here now to here now, I have to use language, it's inadequate. It, we're going, there's depth that's added. There's an interior journey that we're going on. So at the same time that we're doing ordinary work, we're also doing Dharma work. So when, when my teacher, when Sansanim asked me, what is your true job? Um, 
he didn't mean to become unemployed. He meant uh, if you do your job with a certain attitude, in a sense, it's a bargain. You're getting two for the price of one. You're doing your job, you get promoted, get a raise. Well, not anymore, but I mean, you used to in the old. <laughs> now you're just lucky if you keep the job. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it's not that you have to run back to some meditation center or some other special hol where holy work goes on, spiritual work goes on, and then we go from there back to where mundane, ordinary, so-called real world. As far as I can tell, there's only one world. It's all real. Uh, I may have mentioned this, but I, uh, typically, and I don't know if it's still going on, because I only know, you know, Michael and I teach here, and I, I don't know how other people teach anymore, and I know how I used to teach years ago, and how I hear that some teaching goes on. It's another way of looking at it. Uh, I'm invested in this, so I have a bias, of course. And that is, at the end of the retreat, Yogis will start to talk about, um, well, now it's time to go back to the real world. And they may have just finished three months of sitting. What, uh, so I don't, I don't get that. As far as I can tell, prior to all these forms, including three-month retreats, no matter what uh, you label it and what stage set you, uh, you ascribe to it, it's people doing things. Is there, we're now going back to daily life. Is there no daily life here? Did no one go to the bathroom while you were here? <laughs> no teeth were brushed? No meals were eaten? Uh, and then we said, well, there's no relationship, at least. There's no speaking. Baloney. Weren't you eyeing each other up? Haven't you noticed certain things? Come on. And silently, hasn't your mind judged people? It hasn't? OK. You're a great bunch of yogis. But I know that when I was doing retreats, uh, I did. At any rate, what I'm trying to say is life goes on. And no matter how, so in this particular setting, correct action is maintaining silence, doing lots of sitting, a lot more than typically most of us do at home. And we don't have, uh, we have a, well, a wee bit of a job that some of you complain about. Come on, 20 minutes to vacuum a floor. Get over what your mommy made you do when you were a kid. It's time to, you're 69 years old. <laughs> Vacuum the floor and don't make such a fuss over it. Okay. Okay, so um, here, um, there, there's a daily life going on just as there is there. Now, then it's talk, the, the last talk is often called an integration talk. I stopped using that language some years ago because that implies we have to integrate ourselves from here to then go to the real world where people eat meat and uh, have the wrong political position and uh, kill each other, insult each other, and all the rest would cut you off and take your parking spot. And, whereas here, it's we're all angelical. So. Um, with this approach, there's just life. Uh, to me, that's, I don't feel cheated. I feel that's great. I like to look at life that way. It makes me feel good. There's just life wherever you go. And life in this form, in the form of a retreat center. And what is correct action? That's a question that we all have to answer to again and again and again throughout a day. Correct action here is when it's time to sit, sit. When it's time to walk, walk. When it's time to do your yogi job, do your yogi job, go to lunch, and so forth. When we leave here, 
the, the, each situation has different correct action. If you're driving a car, uh, don't say, well, now is the time for me to really do some breath awareness, unless you're, unless you're at a red light. When you're driving a car, drive your car. That's correct action, et cetera. When you're hugging your child, hug your child, uh, et, et cetera. I don't have to spell it out. So as our mind becomes more alert and clear and fresh, what correct action is becomes more obvious. And we're even able to carry it out more effectively because we're more intimately connected with what's going on rather than seeing it through a filter of obstinate familiarity. Whereas how many, you know, if you've been living, like I've, I've been married, I don't know, my wife should, don't tell my wife, I don't know how long we've been married, but let make up some number of years. Uh, <laughs> the point is, oh yeah, there goes Galena, she's gonna now say da da da, and she does, you know. And then, I don't know if any of you read Chekhov plays about old couples. Uh, they all know everything that they have to say, and they're sitting there, and uh, it's a magnificent one, and I've forgotten which one it is. Uh, but uh, now, in this practice, uh, when you pay attention, you begin to see that you've formed an, I formed an image of her as here's Ocalina, she's coming home from work and she's gonna complain about how her, you know, this uh, patient was uh, whining and that one did this, and sure enough, there it comes. And, and you know, Mrs. X, she came late for the pyramid and then dry and I said, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Um, when you start paying attention, you could see you're doing uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, you're all, part of you is uh, concerned with what's going on in the Middle East and the other part is going uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and you can see that it's not such a great way to live because you're not, you're not fully alive. It's not some, uh, it has to be an ideal, the good husband. It's that not, that's true too, but it's, it's, not, uh, a good, it's not a good way to be alive. And she does it to me too, more than I do it to her. Because <laughs> she doesn't have a practice that's on the same level as mine. Okay. She means well though. You know? She does not into this Buddhism stuff. She's from Russia. Okay. It's Buddhism. What's wrong with that? <laughs> okay. So uh, once you start paying attention, just ordinary things start to change right in front of you. But what you're paying attention to mainly is your own mind. You see how the mind is fabricating. It's basically seeing the present through yesterday's eyes. And uh, it's some degree of there's some degree of accuracy, but it's also uh, colored by whatever your conditioning has been, whatever your history has been with this particular person. Okay, so now what we're trying to do here, I feel, is in continuity with what happened in China, and what happened when Dogen goes to Japan, and he sees uh, that they value. Uh, that there, that everything is valued, and he does bring this back to Japan. Now, while he was in China, uh, what he saw, he, well, he learned, I'll spell it out, in, in Japan. When he gets back to Japan, and in his discussions, he, he refers often to his experience in China. China, it's called Chan. Uh, we owe a lot to the Chan people. The Chan is what is called Zen in Japan, and Son in Korea, and so forth. Um, because uh, they uh, brought it into the world a bit more, but there was a, there's a limit. 
because when you read about it, all the poetry and the wise koans and sayings, they're about chopping wood and carrying water. They're about drinking tea and eating rice. They're not about relationships with your wife. They're not about raising children. They're not about losing a job. They're not about paying a mortgage. It has nothing to do with that because they have a monastic life that's broader than if you're supported by the population. But, but the principle is there. So now it comes, so Dogen, uh, he, he, he tells the cooks what he learned in China, things like uh, you make the best meal that you can, the, co the cooks. Uh, you, uh, you, uh, treat your, you, you treat the food uh, as if really precious, whether it's a fresh, wonderful dinner, food materials for a meal, that's for an important entourage of people, or the next day when it's kind of leftovers and wilted and it's for a bunch of scraggly monks. You, you still put your best effort into it, just as this uh, cleaning lady did. And he's trying to get at uh, this important change in attitude, which is a change in life, because much of our life is with so-called ordinary things. Um, so he does that. And he starts a monastery, and that spread. And so in, I'm not saying it's, I don't mean to romanticize what's going on there. Uh, in, in, uh, in, let's say, Japanese monasteries now, because much of it isn't anymore. And he, maybe even then, a lot of it was not. But some of it did spread. And it became part of culture, became part of Japanese culture. It spread from the monasteries. Then there became a period of where, the, the pra after Dogen's death, the practice started to wane. It, a lot of the monasteries became lax. Uh, people weren't sitting very much, a little bit of study, a bit of chanting, and then they would just you know, do whatever they did. And some of the, the masters, out of desperation, uh, started, how can we revive this? And they created things like tea, uh, the way of tea, the way of archery, uh, the way of flower arrangement. These were attempts to revive Zen. And for example, I know a bit about tea. Uh, there's a, one of the masters said, the taste of Zen is the taste of tea. The taste of tea is the taste of Zen. Now, what the, what the, now when you come down to it, what, what is this? Just you take some leaves, you throw them in some hot water, you let it soak for a few minutes, and then you drink it. What, what's so special? About, what do you mean the way of tea? You know, it means it's a practice. It's, not, it's, not, it's true that the leaves now we know, green tea, very healthy, but the first time I was exposed to it was in Korea where when we do the late night sitting, the one that we uh, kind of hint to do it, but we don't push too hard, like tonight. Maybe we'll push him a little harder, Michael. I don't know. I'm tired of this, you know, just use your wisdom and all that stuff. <laughs> it doesn't work, you know. They just go to sleep. Okay. Uh, where it was a... It was not this formal, in, ja in Japan, it's a very, very elaborate ceremonial ritual. It's, it's, if any of you have done it, I, I've tried it. I did a little of it. It's not for me. It's not for anyone from Brooklyn, disqualified. <laughs> you cannot do it. It's just not, it's impossible. You can try, but you'll fail. It's not for you. Okay. Okay. In fact, it's probably not for anyone in this room. Okay. Um, but what I did see was a respect for, because tea does, it's not like coffee, so it has certain physiological effects. It perks up the mind. There's theanine and caffeine. Something good comes out of that. 
that's helpful for meditators. But it was also an attitude accompanying it. It wasn't just, here, have a cup of tea you know, uh, at some diner. Uh, it, it, there was a lot of respect going on and careful drinking of it, as w at, the one, at least at one monastery I practiced that. It's certainly not true of all of them. And it was of the same, of the same cloth, cut from the same cloth, as sitting and walking and everything else you did. There was an attempt to make life practice and practice life. So in tea, they tried to do that. Uh, and all these others that came up. Now, my own experience with it, some of it a, a bit, some not so much, um, they created it in order to uh, take activities that people do ordinarily. There was archery and all that. And much of this was going on in China. When it came to Japan, uh, this is what happened. Um, they tried to elevate it to make it so that it would spread to the rest of life. But typically what happened and what seems to happen is it then becomes a specialty, like you become an eye, ear, nose, and throat specialist. All you know about, I don't want to know, I don't want to hear about anything else, just how's your throat? <laughs> you know, well, but how about my, my uh, mind? No, 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 I'm just eye, eye ear, nose, and throat. And even, I don't even do eyes and ears anymore, just throat. <laughs> Down the hall is the guy who does throat, and there's a woman who does ears, or whatever. No, of something, toes, or something. Okay, so it's, what Michael is getting at as fragmentation is when we break life into these pieces, there are differences in life, but it's more the attitude where they're, they're kind of sealed off from each other, and often inconsistent and contradictory, and we behave differently, not appropriately, but uh, in ways that are harmful. Um, there was one beautiful event which affected me deeply many, many years ago when I first started doing all this. Uh, I was with a group of people who, who watched a archery, a, a Japanese uh, a master of Zen uh, arrow, bow and arrow. And we were all watching, and uh, there were, I don't know, a few hundred people and it's quite an elaborate preparatory phase, and there's a target, and he comes out, the master, and he has special clothing, and I don't know what to call it, you know, things on his hands, and this, and, uh, and all kinds of chanting, and, it was, and we were waiting, and, and it was building up, and it became very, very dramatic. And finally, the time came, and everyone is, we were really holding our breath. He put this very large bow, and he pulls the arrow back, way back, holds it. And we're literally holding our breath. And he shoots it up in the air. <laughs> Do you get it? The target is everywhere. That's what he was trying to say. The target is everywhere. Uh, and that's all I've been trying. Why don't I just say that? And then we could have a short talk. And we could all have to do something else. But all right, it took me a long time to get to it. But that's what we're saying is, Dharma is everywhere, but it's only if you practice that way. It's, it's all a matter of attitude. It's how you relate to what's happening to you. Do you learn from it? Do you, for example, most of us are not going to walk around being a happy worker, li like this, uh, let's say, in the br bridge over River Kwai, be happy in your work. We're miserable in our work. It's boring. We've done it for 50 years. Enough. I want to retire. I can't now. OK. Um, but when you, when you start to see what's going on, in a way, you get freed from the tyranny of form, 
where unless, if the form or the conditions, the situation is right, then you can be happy. And if it shifts, in a, then you're, you can't be happy. So we become very dependent on causes, conditions, situation, and so forth. And Dharma practice is to get free of that so that there's an inner fulfillment. There's an inner peace and joy. I'm using words that are not exactly the best. Uh, that's not dependent on the weather conditions. Not dependent at all. Um, and that is very, very liberating. Now you come back to the, for example, when you start to taste the depths of what meditation offers, uh, in silence, let's say, and, you, and silence starts to become a normal part. And the word silence covers, it's a word, shunyata, silence, no word's going to do it justice. Um, there's one Tibetan tradition that refers to what, we, what is often called enlightenment as the great silence. That, to me, is a very beautiful way of putting it. Um, and it's accessible to everyone in this hall. You've already had little pieces of it. We don't value it. We, most of us don't even know it's there, or we think it's a break from the real thing, which is thinking, doing, running, hopping, skipping, diving out of airplanes, skiing down mountains, <laughs> punching each other out, you know, just you know, <laughs> reading this, punching that thing. Now nah, it's real life, you know. Um, silence is a normal, very beautiful part of the human constitution, inner silence. We know about outer silence. We appreciate it. It's a break. The refrigerator stops. The children turn off their silly TV program. That's great. It's a what a relief. Or we turn off our own silly program. Um, this is an inner silence. All of like this center is designed to the outer silence is really just a periphery of helping us to get to the real silence, which is interior. The pilgrimage is inside, but these outer conditions are designed to help us get there. And once you taste that, that activates uh, an energy. It activates something. It's a very, very extraordinary. I would say in my own life, the most important healing has gone on in the silence, not by my attempts to fix any problems I thought I might have had regarding myself or my this, that, or the other. It's something, and I can't tell you how, how that happens. Any degree of a little bit, being a little bit kinder, a little bit more compassionate, did not come from me trying to be that way. Something comes out of the silence that I'm, I'm speechless. I honestly am. And I would call it a form of intelligence, because when the mind is silent like that, <clears throat> it doesn't end there. You can get fixated and get trapped there. That's not the point. The point is to allow that energy to be received, to let it work on you and then to bring that into the so-called ordinary aspects of life. So you go back to the same form, the same people, the same job, the same everything. You still have to floss, all the rest of it. But somehow it's changed because you have changed. If you're depending on the world to keep being the way you want it to be so that you can be happy, as they say in Japan, ratsuruk. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Uh-oh, wrong speech. <laughs> Any people of Japanese origin here? <laughs> I Just joking, you know? So what, so what is it that we have to learn? In the few minutes I have left, it, 
if we trace this, I'm simplifying this historical journey, it's gone from India, then it's gone to China, to Japan and Korea. Okay, here, for some reason, lay people have a lot of energy and interest in these things, and it seems to be growing all the time. Places like this are flourishing. The CIMC is flourishing. It started because we needed a place that could accommodate people's lives as they were, not just run to retreat centers all the time, and then, uh, which is a small fraction of the rest of your life, and then do what for the rest of the time when you're home? Long to get back to the next annual retreat or two or three times a year? It's not a good way to live. So the center that we started in Cambridge is designed to implement all this, to help people understand that that it's one thing that we're talking about. It's life. It's le life is here to be lived. And Dharma practice is about learning how to live. Wisdom is learning the art of living. And it's not something you learn once and for all. It's not memorizing wise words. Confucius says, Socrates said, that's not it. That's the menu. Try eating a menu. See how long it lasts before you suffer from malnutrition. Okay, So it's to get you to to become wisdom so that you are dharma. Uh, not just read about it, think about it, and get starry-eyed when someone gives, like tonight, a brilliant talk. <laughs> the, the only value of these words is to get you to look inside yourself. Okay. Now, so what I'm pointing to, and we'll get into more of this before we go home. I don't want to get too far into going home, because then your mind will be home while your body is here. Maybe it's already home. I don't know. Um, the innovation that we need is just to extend it. Look, it's in the Buddha's original teaching. Be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. That means all of life. Okay, But we have to elaborate it. We have to uh, uh, develop it. We have to uh, fashion it. It's creative. We have to... It's radical relative to what's come before. Uh, the monks in China, Japan, Korea, and so forth, they didn't marry. They didn't have children. They didn't go to school. They didn't have jobs the way we do. So that was fine, chopping wood and drawing water, eating rice. And that meant really totally eating rice and drinking tea, 100% rice mind, tea mind, chopping wood mind, toilet mind. That's what we're learning, full attention to what you're doing when it's over. Exhale it so you make room so you can inhale the next situation. The breath is a kind of metaphor for the whole thing. Okay, so what we're at the, I see it as at the early stages of developing a genuinely a lay practice that is appropriate for us. This is not saying that monastic practice is no good and that this is superior. I don't feel that. I feel it's appropriate for people who pick the monastic approach to life, that strategy. And for some people, it's magnificent, and it's quite efficient, and it optimizes getting free. Hardly, it's certainly not, not every monk gets free. That's ridiculous. No one, not everyone of anything does everything. So for us, it's that our conditions call for it. It's not that this is superior to what's going on in a monastery. It's just that. He, this is what our life is. We have to, we're starting from the facts of the way this is. Now, I'll end up with, with this. What's the relationship of all this? Now the, the practice is um, 
just be with what's there, right? The second set of meditation instructions. So let's say, what is sitting quietly here in this nice, wonderful meditation center and watching everything arise and pass away, what bearing does that have on everything that's just been said this evening? Well, in a microcosm, what we're learning is to be with what turns up. Since we don't have an agenda, we're just sitting there, life presents us with, haven't you, if you've been doing this, have you liked everything that's visited you in consciousness? I don't think so. Okay, so just like you might not like cleaning a toilet, you might not like having a certain mood come upon you, a certain memory, a certain apprehension about the future. It's the same principle. We're learning how to land on our feet, uh, how to be with what's there. Why? Because it is there. It's a fact. And we're doing it in a relatively protected uh, arena. It's designed for this. It's a brilliant design. And it's tremendously valuable. A contemplative life, this is not saying, oh, you don't need to sit anymore. Just vacuum and you'll get enlightened. Just the way of vacuuming will be a new one, you know. Uh, and there'll be Buddhas in every center vacuuming. And I'm not saying that. Sitting, sitting is as precious as it ever was. Some people will do more, some less, based on motivation and, and a constitution. Not everyone is drawn to it the same way. That doesn't mean you can't, that, that you're handicapped. You can get wise to anything. But what I am saying is most of our life, probably, definitely, for most of us, if not all of us, is, is going to be lived in very ordinary circumstances, not a derogatory term, hardly. And we, can we turn that around so that the construction workers who turn up in Michael's story last night, they were sent here by the Buddha. They can teach, they did teach us more than the Buddha could. Probably the Buddha would agree. He was saying, I sent you those construction workers because you weren't getting it. That's why we had them build when you guys were all ready for a nice, ah, breathe in, breathe out. How nice. So um, when you sit, you don't know what's going to turn up. Not only is everything changing, but it's changing in an uncertain way. It's not scheduled like a train. You know, or, well, even trains can be late. But here, a lot of life is unscheduled. I remember, um, I couldn't stop laughing. I read in a sociology book many years ago, death was considered a non-scheduled status transition. <laughs> what? You mean when a person dies? Yes, you just went into a non-scheduled status transition. Oh, good, it means I'm dead, right? <laughs> And not only that, I'm not, I ain't around to know what that, what that status is, but that's for you guys who stayed behind. Uh, so at any rate, um, okay. Uh, the Chinese, as so often the ancient Chinese, really there was a lot of wisdom there. And a lot of what, uh, what has come down through us is from Taoism and Buddhism and all kinds of isms. Um, they talked about the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, which will always be with us. But I'm going to leave you with this uh, way that they looked at the act, how you make up a day. Uh, Michael gave you the precepts on the first day. You know, for example, killing. There are no mosquitoes. You don't swat anything here. But there's uh, an inner killing and an inner uh, uh, giving life. Killing in this, uh, in this approach, the Chinese saw it as uh, this is Chinese Zen, Chan. Uh, killing is when you're divided. 
in a certain moment when half of you is in X and the other half is in Y, let's say you're doing something, but you're hardly there, but it gets done. The dishes are spotless, but you weren't there, hardly. Okay, That's, you're killing life in the sense that you're killing the quality of life. Okay, They call that killing life. When you were fully 100%, whatever it is you're doing, they call that giving life to life. It's not merely poetic or a nice way of putting it. You can feel it. When you're fully present, it's a different life. So we have more time. The retreat's hardly over. So don't get tense or start str struggling, but see if we, let's see if we can finish by um, seeing that everything that we do here... Oh, I do have one last thing to say. Okay. I usually have three or four last things. Tonight, only two, or maybe three. But anyway, um, typically we think of a retreat center, the main value is to get away from things, the responsibilities. And I mean, this, it's, it's useful temporarily. It's wonderful. And to have an enclosed, protected environment where we can mainly be with ourselves. It's a, a beautiful, necessary human activity. It's not a luxury item. So then why all this, why are we emphasizing daily life, daily life, clean the toilets, this, that, and all, all the rest, cook, and this and that? Because it's also can be a way of getting this attitudinal change going while we're here. First of all, Michael and I are saying it over and over again in different ways. And we, it's a slower life. Um, you have more, there are le there's less to do, and you can begin to develop that ability to do each thing in turn fully wholeheartedly, in an undivided way, so that perhaps in addition to the immense value that can come from the sitting practice and the walking practice, you can also begin to transfer respect for everything you're doing to when you go back home, where of course it's going to be much more challenging. More things to do, faster, more complex, and talk. once you start talking, forget about it. When people, right? So, um, that's it. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? Okay, let's see if we can keep the observing mind alive as we do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.